It's a July morning in Belfast, 2016. A group of children are getting on buses to go on a day trip to Tato Park in Meath. What bus went mile? You're on our bus. Every year, around the 12th of July, this community group bus their children out of the city to avoid the tensions around the marches. As a journey, this bus trip with the children has its origin in bus trips that began here over 40 years ago. And although I've lived in Ireland all my life, I only found out about them because of what's been happening in the Mediterranean. The crew of the Eli Roisin have carried out their first humanitarian rescue in the Mediterranean Sea. The Med used to be associated with sun holidays, but latterly it's shorthand for the flight of refugees from the Middle East, Africa and beyond to Europe. They picked up 125 migrants from an inflatable... This crisis has prompted many conversations. Some are abstract, philosophical ones. Others are much more practical. If they come here to Ireland, could we really cope? I had one of these conversations about refugees with some monks in Glenstall Abbey, a Benedictine monastery near the village of Maru in County Limerick, where I live. I was trying to imagine what it must be like to flee a war zone. The fear, the uncertainty, the anxiety. The monks said that they knew. They said that their monastery was a temporary home to refugees fleeing a war. Really? I wondered. When? 1972, they said. July, 1972. This is the news at 1.30, handing over straight away to Charles Mitchell for the latest developments. There's been more shooting in Belfast after the night of violence in which six people were killed. Five of the victims, including a priest and a young girl, have been named... Those were Irish refugees, and they came from Belfast to Glenstall Abbey in East Limerick. We were down the back avenue somewhere. My memory is romantically making hay or doing something like that. Father Simon Sleeman was a 21-year-old novice monk in Glenstall at the time. The next thing we were told to turn around quick and get back up to the school and start making beds. And so we got up, we went back up and we started making beds and waited, waited for the refugees to arrive. Refugees displaced from their homes by the Troubles. Five of the six killed overnight have now been named. 1972 was the worst year of the Troubles. One of the dead was a 60-year-old man. He was killed by a bullet as he drove his car down the Falls Road. The 13-year-old girl was shot near her home in West Rock Drive, Valley Murphy, and was found lying on a footpath. The priest who died administering the last rites to a dying man, he was shot through the neck. And that July, 10,000 evacuees fled the nationalist housing estates across the north and came south to safety. Of these 6,000 and more refugees who have crossed the border so far, virtually all are women and children. The men are staying in the north. Yes, they're not allowed to go. Have to. The men stayed behind to defend their housing estates and streets. Those evacuees who came to Limerick were all Catholics. I want to find out more about that period in our recent history. I'm interested in the people who came south and those who welcomed them here. And what impact did it all have on them? The monks, the volunteers who helped them and the Northern Irish refugees. Glenstall Abbey in County Limerick. 
In some ways, it was an ideal place to house a large group. In other ways, it would seem entirely unsuitable. Glenstall was then, and is now, a boarding school. Set in a 19th century castle. Perfect for dealing with big numbers of people. With large kitchens and dormitories. So th- th- these are the state rooms, you know, the Barrington, the Barringtons who built Glenstall. When the Northern Irish refugees came in 1972, they probably thought it looked like something out of a Robin Hood movie. If children were to visit nowadays, they'd immediately say Hogwarts. It's just like something out of a Harry Potter movie, with dark panelled rooms and even an old circular library. We're looking at vaulted ceilings, studded with painted stars. It's a deep blue colour. Think of the trouble they went to creating this in the 1830s or 40s. You know, this used to be a refectory, and there was a huge painting hanging here. And someone came in one day and said, do you know what that is? It was a hunthurst now, but it was worth a quarter of a million. And I was hanging up there, having porridge thrown at it and tomato ketchup. And the next day it was gone to Christie's <laughs> and sold. However, Glenstall was not entirely suitable for a large group of women and children coming in 1972, because, as now, it was then a boys' boarding school quite sedate and genteel, run by an order of monks famous for their books of prayer and their singing. This is the place then that the Northern Irish refugees were heading to during the night of July the 11th and the 12th, 1972. But well, I'd say the most of the got a bigger shock than what the children did. <laughs> Connie Hayes, civil defence man. Lovely quiet life they had up there. <laughs> and most of them came from, I suppose, um, middle class to upper class backgrounds the monks of Lestal, and they'd be used to the finer things in life. <laughs> and not jump for this course and swear. <laughs> uh, scallywags run around the place. <laughs> One of the evacuees was Gemma Stewart. She was four at the time and was travelling with her mother and siblings. She remembers being in Glenstall, but she doesn't remember the actual journey there. But my brother Jared does. He said that we were... Now, what he said is we were put in, like, a a cattle train or something. He said there was no windows on the train and there was hay on the floor and he was sick because of the smell. Eventually, all the Northern Irish refugees were transferred to buses. There were 170 women and children. Molly McMullen was one of those. She was travelling with her five children from Ballymurphy in Belfast. At that stage, Ballymurphy was a war zone and, like many of the women... Molly had to leave at short notice. I had a son who was sick and the other son had broke his leg. So whenever we were at Mass, the word came in, uh, go down to the community centre and report any sickness or what did you have. So I went down and reported. So I was handed uh, a couple of plastic bags, black plastic bags, fell in and I says, what for? He says, they'll be up in half an hour for you. You're moving out. And I says, I don't want to move, I don't want to stay in the house. And he says, with him being sick and the fella being in plaster Paris, what are you going to do if you have to run? And you have to run me your kids. He's in plaster Paris and he takes a turn. And uh, we'll just rather than have that happen, I went with them. If Molly had had to run with her children, this is what she would have been running from in 1972. 
I'd done a first aid course and the day that we were getting our certificates, I went out for the go down, it was supper time, like, you know. And when I went out to the door, my eye lab was shouting, hey, don't you be going out, don't you be going out, because there was a bit of hassle and all. And I says, ah, it's all right. You, you know, you just hoped you got out and back again and that was it. And I crossed the road and a bullet came that side and that side off me. First the North and a report from Tom McSweeney in Belfast. There's been heavy shooting in the Ballymurphy area. It broke out first at Corrigan Park where three gunmen opened fire on the British Army from a water tower. The army Gun battles. Mm. Um, we'd hide cupboards. in the cupboards. The built-in cupboard you had in the, the bedroom. We had in there. We went to Belfast to talk to people about the summers of the early 1970s. When we stopped women on the streets in West Belfast and asked them about their childhood then, everyone had a story. I lived in a house in Spring Hill Avenue and the bullet came right through the window and landed in the kitchen wall. This area, Ballymurphy, is at the foot of Black Mountain. During the Troubles, snipers would position themselves on the mountain and fire down into Ballymurphy, a bit like Sarajevo in the 1990s. My daddy brought the mattresses down into the living room because our house is at the bottom there and the bullets were flying through the windows. So we had to lay on the floor in the living room. Mummy was near dead once. The bullet just missed her head. She just closed the door and the bullet came through. Oh, it was wild, so it was desperate. Meanwhile, back in rural East Limerick, the monks were waiting in Glenstall for their visitors. Also, waiting in nearby Dune were the local civil defence. We were all had to wait in our uniforms all actually at the local pub, a pub at a time called Paddy Ryan's Pub of Main Street Dune. PJ McNamara, one of the civil defence leaders, there was a practical reason for them all to be in the pub that night. Pre-mobile phone days, we had to rely on the phone number of the actual publican. So he was the contact and we were all waiting for the buses to arrive. About a dozen of us were waiting there in our full uniform with all our paraphernalia on and our rescue gear because we were trained to do rescue with our boots and our helmets and our jackets and so on and so forth. As the civil defence were sitting in the pub that night in their rescue gear, someone began to realise there was a problem with what they were wearing. So the Finchurum at the time was actually based on the British Second World War model. So we had things like leggings and hobnail boots and things. In actual fact, we had to all go home again and remove the uniforms because, of course, many of the children coming down were traumatised. Uh, they just would not be able to deal with a uniform body of, of any description, no, no matter how friendly or benign we were. So there was a moment when everybody had to go home to get rid of their uniforms and their helmets and their gears and come back in their civvies. And, of course, there were numerous false alarms that were coming and they were delayed and then they were coming. Connie Hayes was another of the local civil defence personnel. And Mikey Mack and PJ and the lads came in telling us, red alert, red alert, we're all heading for Glenstall. <laughs> Very dramatic. So we piled, dropped our pints, finished them anyway, set into cars and headed for Glenstall. So we were waiting when the buses arrived. The first one of the buses arrived very late. It was two or three in the morning by the time they arrived. Father Simon, the novice monk at the time. My abiding memory is counting them in the door, the front door of the castle. And there's busloads of people, women, all women and babies, things that we were not really, well, <laughs> cut out to look after. The trauma that the children were experiencing, not so much from the long drive down, but the darkness. I think the darkness coming down into County Limerick and the darkness coming up into Glenstall itself, I think 
added to their sense of, I suppose, bewilderment is the word I'd like to use. As I researched this documentary, people constantly referred to the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. And while the scale is different, there are some parallels. No one was sure who was coming and how many. How long were they staying? What were their needs? Connie Hayes, the civil defence man, remembers talking to some of the boys who arrived in the boarding school in the early hours of that morning in July 1972. He discovered one of the small boys was there on his own. There was a group of three, and two of them were brothers. Anyway, one fellow was about 11 or 12, and the other fellow was, I'd say, about eight. And there was no adult with him. But the third lad informed me. He was a real talkative and a cheeky chap, I'd say. And I asked him um, who sent him down. Oh, he says he was travelling with his mate, and he was going on the bus to come down south. The two boys, seemingly their parents had put them on the bus all right to come down. So he just jumped on the bus with his mates. And I said, do your parents know who you are? And he said, hi, he says, I was passing, I saw my sister in the street. I told her I was going to the site of the lads. And that's all he knew about them. And I mean, there were no communications in those. There's like the telephone or like that. So he came south and his parents were told by his sister that he was coming south. But their faces were tight and closed and, and suspicious, looking at you suspiciously. Some child asked, you know, who do you hate? Who do you hate? You know, because you're meant to hate somebody at the, during that terrible time. We're all occupied, yes, yesterday, all by Roman Catholics. That terrible time began three years before. Well, these all Catholic families. All Catholic families. Every one of them have been... All the whole lot and for those down south watching on TV, a significant night was in the summer of 1969 when Catholic homes in Belfast were burnt by loyalist mobs in Bombay Street. Well, listen, how did they actually burn these houses along here? By throwing petrol bombs over the roof from the Protestant area. And this house here, here behind you is still burning. Yes. People screaming and yelling and... We're getting burned out, we're getting burned out. This elderly woman, Teresa, lived on the street at the time. Then the men all running, all the men, get the shelter out, get the shelter out. When Teresa and her neighbours were burnt out in 1969, the Irish government offered help. It opened field hospitals on the border and sheltered Northern Irish refugees in army camps. And we had the land camp beds. That wasn't too bad because we had the army and all to play with and maybe keep the kids entertained and things like that. Again, stop anyone on the streets of West Belfast over a certain age and you're bound to get a memory of that time. We went to Gormanstown on a train and then down to Kilkenny. I had we sing songs and all in the big hall and games and all that. Give us clothes and blankets and all. And, strangely the refugee crisis suited the Irish government. The refugees were our way of discrediting the Stormont regime. This is Olin Long, a historian. He's made a study of the refugee crisis in the early 1970s. What you have as well is a kind of a propaganda war in a way. It is with deep sadness that you and I, Irishmen and women of goodwill, have learned of the tragic events which have... Jack Lynch made his um, infamous speech that we will not stand by. It is evident also that the Stormont government is no longer in control of the situation. Stormont was, wasn't working, partition wasn't working. Look at all these refugees crossing the border. But at the end of the summer of 1969, most of the northern refugees had gone home and the immediate crisis was over. However, the next summer, with the marching season beginning, the refugees started to come south again. 
wooden huts hurriedly converted into makeshift accommodation for the distraught victims of sectarian riots. And it happened every summer. It was a huge relief for those from the north needing a break from the tension. This woman, Anne from Ballymurphy, remembers they were put up in a college in Cork. When we arrived in Cork, we couldn't understand the pace. The pace, you could smell it in the air, but you were expecting shooting or a bomb mm-hmm. to go off. You know what I mean? But the people of Cork was fantastic. They really were. The people on the ground may have been fantastic toward the Northern Irish refugees. But by the summer of 1972, Olin Long, the historian, says some official attitudes to them began to change. In a governmental record from 1972, when it was discussing the situation in 1969, 1970, and again in 1971. So this is what it says. The refugees who came down from the north in appreciable numbers in 1969, 1970, and again in 1971, did so largely through fear for their personal safety. Most of them came on the spur of the moment and in great haste, bringing with them what they wore. In 1972, however, the pattern was somewhat different. The refugees on this occasion had obviously made preparations in advance for a holiday in the south. Most of them had suitcases and numbers of the children carried swimming gear, tennis rackets, fishing rods, etc. And stories came out that maybe the refugees weren't ideal house guests. A major issue at the time would have been the violence of these northern children. I remember speaking to one principal of a primary school in Kilworth in Cork and the refugees were in Kilworth as well. And I remember he recalled a story to me about a fight between two northern kids. And he said he'd never seen the likes of it. I mean, they, they literally, they really went for each other and hit each other and broke each other's noses and so on. I, I describe it in my thesis as, you know, Belfast Billy was a bad influence in little Tomas, little southern Tomas. You know, once we started to see this behaviour coming through, we didn't want to know. We, we really did not want to know. And it's a major, it was a major issue. It was a major issue at the time was the behaviour of the children. For example, I heard a story about a group of refugee children across Avon in Cork. Someone bought a green jeep at the time and he was driving through Cross Avon and of course when the children saw the green jeep, automatically memories started to flood back to them of Belfast and the only green jeep they would have seen in Belfast was the Queen's green jeep and they proceeded to throw stones at it. This poor farmer's driving along and he's getting stones pelted at the jeep. Yeah, And you'll hear stories like that over and over again, over and over again. And the monks in Glenstall had heard those stories too. They'd been told by the Redemptorists in Limerick, for example, that the children had caused damage there. Certainly the word gone out that you need to mind your place. Uh, let's put it that way. You know, that, that there's a lot of energy. You're, you're importing a lot of energy which will need an outlet. And if you don't provide it, then they'll find us. So that night, the early hours of July 12th, 1972, when the northern refugees came through the doors of the castle in Glenstall, the monks had decided on one very simple strategy for dealing with them. No rules at all. Brother Timothy, who was there at the time. So when they came down, we sat them in the playroom, big room in the castle, and uh, they were asking questions. Mister, mister, what time do you have to get up at? And we said, well, you don't have to get up at all. No, you can stay in bed if you want, you know. Can we? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Of course, you know, the sausages will be cold by the time you get up, though. Oh, and Mister, can we uh, can we build a barricade on the front uh, drive? Oh, of course, yeah. There's very good. An old tree fell down just over there, and you can get the stuff from there and bring it, drag it across. And if you want to help, we can get a tractor and so on. Yeah, okay, uh, Mister. And so all they asked for, they got. And the mothers too were sort of, you know, can we go to the pub and so on? Oh, of course you can. Oh yeah, actually, oh yes. 
anything you wanted. And they were the best guests we ever had. <laughs> they were with us about three weeks or a month, I can't remember which. And we hadn't a day's trouble with them, not a day's trouble. And that's because they couldn't find any rules to break, because there weren't any rules. While the young monks were preparing themselves for boisterous children, the young civil defence volunteers were taken by the style of the mothers. Connie Hayes. The Kinbuddin was, was, was the deficiency, mostly young women, like a lot of them with the bland head and the uh, false leopard skin coat kind of thing, you know. Molly, who got off the bus with her five children, says they were, at least, bang up to date with flares or bell bottoms. <laughs> bell bottom jeans and <laughs> platform boots. <laughs> Platform shoes. Oh, we were with this day. <laughs> Whatever about being with the style, it was soon time for bed. This goes right up to the keep, you know, goes right up the top of the keep. The, the dormitories are right up there. And Father Simon had to go around the abbey seeing that everyone was settling in. They would have found their way to these dorms. We made up the 200 beds and then we went to find the people in the beds and half the beds weren't occupied. So dormitories were empty, there were no children. And I said, what has happened here? Where have they disappeared? And the fact was that most of them had never slept in a single bed. You know, there were two or three to a bed. And so that solved that problem. About six beds in each dormitory, and if the younger ones were young enough, you could have doubled them up, you know, top and bottom. And the dorm I was in, my chum was in the dorm with me, and she had six kids, I had five. And Mrs. Doherty, she had about five for horse day. And they, we were all in the one dorm. So you may guess what that was like. There's about 15 kids, 16 kids. And every dorm was more or less the same. Oh no, there was another wee woman. She had a whole crowd of kids. God help her, she was that freaking. She brought all the kids into the one bed with her. At night and all, she was so freaking to letting them out of her sight. once everybody was all sorted into the rooms and, and all settled down to peace, that come over you. The next morning when they awoke, the women and children saw that they had swapped their Belfast council houses for a castle in Limerick, complete with cannons and battlements looking out over 500 acres of open farmland, with herds of cattle and sheep grazing all around. Molly was delighted. Glenstall was just a dream. What did it look like? Cavern. Just looked like heaven. Although she was only four years of age at the time, Gemma Stewart has vivid memories of Glenstall. There was these big grounds and there was a big massive dining room. It seemed like there was a big massive long table. Around the corner there was like, as they say, a dormitory because there was loads and loads of beds, but I was upstairs with my mummy. And I remember it was a big, long staircase. It's like a castle. It's even nicer than Harry Potter's. 
with moving staircases. I remember it was a horse and cart bringing us into the village and a lot of us wouldn't get on to it. We just, we just followed behind on the horse and cart because we were scared to get on it. Inside the castle, the big rooms had shiny floors, ideal for playing on with your shoes off. Slide along, we all, with our sacks, there was like a, a big hallway or something. We all would have slid up and down that on our sacks. There was cannon guns up in the battlements and the kids all went up and played on the battlements and climbed over the cannons and everything, so they did. But they always had minders with them. They weren't allowed to do anything unless they had minders. While she was with that group of minders, Gemma became attached to one in particular. I seemed to be with him a lot. There was one day, I'd, he'd give me a big bar of chocolate and I was sitting on a wall and I'd fell down into this, it was jaggy nettles. And I remember him coming over and picking me up and rubbing duck leaves over my arms and my legs and I think there was still some on my face. And I was still holding on to a bar of chocolate. <laughs> And it was melting in my hand, I was licking my hands, and he was trying to rub these things. I was crying like, and he was rubbing the things over me. I remember one day he came with a big pile of toys, but I was given a pram to play with. Don't know where the toys came from. There was churchgate collections. Appeals went out to the local churches. Appeals went out for food, for example. A large amount of clothes were being provided by the shops of Limerick City. For example, Roach's stores and, and uh, Todd's, as they were called at the time. In actual fact, one of the difficulties we had later on was trying to deal with all of that material that was coming. Anoraks, blankets. Brother Christopher. Heaps of emergency stuff still to be distributed out here on the terrace. The place was like what one sees now on television with the refugee camps. And I think also because they were in Limerick, it was associated with the Hungarian experience. Which was only the Hungarian experience was the arrival of 350 refugees into Ireland after the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. And they would have seen the northern refugees in that context of coming without food, without clothes, with language difficulties and so on and so forth. That wasn't the case. And Limerick County Council, in fairness and in their wisdom, actually appointed a full-time storeman to deal with all of that. The monks in it were fantastic. It was Father Peter was the head of it in it. He called me Wee Red. Don't know why, but he called me Wee Red. Maybe it was because of red hair. I was with the women a lot. I wasn't with the boys. The boys always got taken off with the monks to the farm and stuff. We very consciously organised the day and the night. It was a Father Peter Gilfeder from the north. He was in charge of sports in the school and he had a wonderful capacity to get children playing whatever, you know, they could have a Coke can or something and they could be have them kicking it or chasing each other or doing something. He was very remarkable that way but he had them chasing around the circle in the front of the castle, I remember. And the next thing was a car backfired, you know. Cars don't backfire anymore but they used to backfire and make this bang. And all the children, you could just see their 
immediate reaction, you know, was, oh my God, what's happened? You know, they, they were attuned to violent sounds. There was a couple of, right few kids, and then brothers took them out into the farms and everything, and they were great with them. The other activity, because I was throwing stones at anything that moved, you can guarantee to fire stones at it. So, you know, they were obviously conditioned, very much conditioned. The monks were assisted by a permanent group of civil defence volunteers at Glenstall. The volunteers were trained as rescue teams and had no idea how to manage the situation they were presented with in the monastery. And many of the volunteers were young themselves. As the days progressed, it became more and more boisterous as they, was, they were allowed to go everywhere, really. The monastery was just open to them. One of the leaders, PJ McNamara, was only 24. He says their lack of preparation and inexperience affected their attitude to the northerners. The kids were very disruptive, they could be, have been very rude, very often very, very bold, very difficult to get them to respond to the most minor request. The cultural difficulty kept arising, partly because of their parents as well, they were on holiday, for some of them, and I know there was trauma as well. Some kids were highly traumatised, some less so. It was the cultural expectations of, were they refugees or were they holiday makers? They had their meals provided, there was entertainment being provided, and now they began to wonder why we weren't able to look after the children. Some of our volunteers were getting quite sort of stressed as well. Their role was not to be serving the meals or, by the way, babysitting the children. And we had quite a number of our volunteers given this job of washing the children and getting them to go to bed while the mummies wanted to go down to Peru. And our ambulance drivers were very, very put out about that because they wanted to stand by with their ambulances to respond to an emergency. And they were asked quite often, could they not take them down to Powers Pub in Abington, which was the nearest pub at the time, take them down there and collect them and so on. The kids, if they done anything, you just, come here, here. You know, you just called them over. That's it, knock it on the head. You have to show respect here. And the kids done it. So our major job was to keep them occupied as much as possible so that our castle would remain intact. <laughs> the ballroom, the Barrington's ballroom. And this is where we had the end. The, the women and the children, or mainly the women in the evening, where we partied every night. In my memory, we partied every night and great sing-songs and trad sessions, again, is my memory happening in here. Very happy memories of this space. My, my memory sort of rebel songs is my, again, it's a memory, but someone else may be able to tell you clearer than I am what they were. We brought the Bunrally singers and all they came in the entertainers and all one night. And then they had a Kaylee another night. Brother Finian and me were doing the Kaylee swing. And he was so tall and I was so small. I just looked onto his arm and he spun away there and I spun with him, you know. And it was just crack. The crack was brilliant, so it was. One of the stars was Brother Kiron was one of our we, we he he didn't appear for about a week or ten days and then I remember I remember some of the women saying 
where were you keeping the film star all this time? As he strutted his stuff and sang the stuttering lover to all these <laughs> women. He kissed her once and he kissed her twice, he kissed her ten times over. It's nice to be kissing a bunny whale, as who's never been kissed before, me lads, who's never been kissed before. While the monks and civil defence put huge energy into keeping the women and children occupied, Brother Timothy also remembers wanting to keep them distracted. The deal that we saw was, you know, give them a nice experience, a bit of fun. I don't think there was anything more heroic about it than simply that. For the monks, 170 women and children living in the monastery brought its own changes. Nappies were not a common sight in Glenstall Abbey up to that point <laughs> or since. It was that jerk of having one's expectations dented. But we survived, we survived, we survived. The kids loved it. My ones didn't want to come home. They wanted to stay in the Abbey. We just all thought it was a big adventure, big playground, because we were allowed to run around the grounds and do what we wanted. And the kids couldn't get over it. They could actually run out and run about the fields and that there. Of course, not all the open areas around Glenstall were child safe. Brother Timothy had one particular worry at the time. We have a big swimming lake, or had a big swim, and we had a jetty. And we didn't like them swimming because they couldn't swim. So they would go in, they'd walk in, but you're walking in, in just ordinary mud and you get clocked down and they could panic and so on. So we didn't really want them swimming. And we weren't trained in life-saving or whatever, you know. So we decided there was a dead sheep in the lake. <laughs> we told the kids, to, hey, I'm not going in there, they're dead sheep in there. <laughs> so that was the end of swimming. End of problem. But the problems continued for PJ McNamara and the civil defence volunteers. They weren't trained to deal with such a group, and their role was unclear. PJ says he and the other volunteers were really feeling the pressure. Were they emergency workers or babysitters? We were doing things like distributing clothes, which weren't really needed. We were manning a first aid post, which really wasn't that needed, except for the odd things like stings, for example. And we had one incident, all right, where a young child went out onto the... There is a, a cannon, a pseudo-cannon, outside the gates of Glenstall, and one of the children, in spite of being told not to go near the cannon, actually the wheel came off and fell over on him and he broke his leg. Oh. And that was a little bit of a... That was quite a traumatic occasion because it was felt that we weren't minding the children at the time. I didn't want to come home. Molly may not have wanted to go home, but her husband got someone to ring her and tell her that squatters had moved into their home. And I was coming up to put them out of my house. You know, no Brett's was going to live in my house. It's my house. And uh, when I came up, my hubby had got somebody to say out on the phone, tell me, because he knew I would come home to put them out. He wanted us home again. One or two of the northern refugees preparing to leave Glenstall brought a new headache for civil defence man PJ McNamara. What was theirs to take and what was belonging to the monastery? You know, for example, the bed linen wasn't theirs to take or the pillows wasn't theirs to take or the rugby boots belonging to the kids who are boarders there wasn't theirs to take. By early August 1972, all the refugees had left Glenstall. In her home, Molly, the mother of five, got a mixed welcome. My mummy says, you should have stayed here and just faced it out the same as everybody else did. That's the way it was. You just, you, you felt like a deserter.
July 12th, 2016, Belfast. The annual commemoration of the Battle of the Boyne, Protestant William of Orange beat Catholic King James. Outside a Catholic church, the police are in riot gear. They have signs on their Land Rovers saying that the Loyalist bands should only play hymn music while passing the church. But as they pass the church, this is what we hear. A few streets across, children from the nationalist area are getting on their buses to head off to County Meath and away from the tension in the city. On the other side of the city, Gemma Stewart is in her kitchen. She's talking about her time in Glensdall. Father Brian loved him, thought he was brilliant, and I think there was one called Oliver. She holds on fast to memories of her days there as a four-year-old with her mother. When they got home, life changed for them dreadfully. Her brother, Brian, was killed near their home. He was shot in the head with a plastic bullet when he was 13. The army said there was a rat, um, but all the eyewitnesses said no, Brian was standing talking to two wee girls. I suppose it changed us all because Mummy fought for years to try and clear Brian's name because she always said, you know, that's the only thing she could do for him now. So I took up an awful lot of her time. She was going to court and going to England and petitioning people. Gemma says Glenstall was one of the last times she remembers her mother being really happy. Like she just said it was lovely down there and the brothers were all lovely and how well everybody got along with each other. She enjoyed it. I think we thought more about it after Brian had died and I was thinking like that was a real good time we had and then this happened and I suppose the way things had changed for the family and all it was... So they were here for about three or four weeks and you, you get close with them. You have these extraordinary human interactions with them. What happens when they actually leave? A sort of sadness that they were going, a sort of bereftness because of that energy and life that you were being surrounded by. You were going back into an all-male sort of older group of men and back into the uninterrupted routine of being up early in the morning and monastic life is very routine you know you get a, supper every evening is at 7.15 if you're here at 7.16 I'm afraid you could go hungry you know that it's every day that's the same and to have this sort of imploding intense energy in the place for them to, you miss it 